Well, grab your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 17. We're going to be wrapping up this chapter this morning. Our passage is going to be dealing with two different events, two separate events that take place in two separate locations. We're going to begin in verse 22, and we'll make our way through verse 27 this morning. Our focus this morning is on the three principles of God. According to the Oxford Dictionary, a principle is a fundamental truth that serves as a foundation for a system of belief. Now, these aren't the only principles of God that are revealed throughout Scripture, but they're the three that come out within the passage we're looking at this morning. And since our passage deals with two separate events and two separate locations, we're going to deal with the first one, and then we'll go to the second one. So we're going to begin in verse 22. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read through 23 at this time. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, if these words sound familiar, it's because this is the second of four times within the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is going to tell his disciples what is going to take place when they finally arrive in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. We can find this statement also in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, and Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 45. And all three of those Gospels, which again are known as the Synoptic Gospels, have this statement word for word. The only difference between the three Gospels is how they describe the disciples' reaction to what Jesus is telling them. And within Matthew, this statement is found in chapter 16. We've looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We'll see it again in chapter 20, and we'll see it again in chapter 26. Now, each time Jesus informs his disciples about what is going to take place as they edge closer to Jerusalem, it is almost acts as a bookmark within the Gospel of Matthew, either coming after something that just happened or setting up an extraordinary event that is about to happen. For example, in chapter 16, when Jesus first tells his disciples what is going to take place in Jerusalem, it's right after Peter has just confessed the identity of Jesus Christ as being the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it, then when Jesus says what is going to happen, Peter ends up rebuking Jesus, leading him to be rebuked by Jesus. It eventually would lead into chapter 17 with a transfiguration. Here in chapter 17, when Jesus says it, it's setting up his final preaching tour, which he's going to do within the region of the Jewish people. In chapter 20, the statement is made as Jesus is preparing disciples. They're getting ready to enter Jerusalem to what would be his final time during his earthly ministry. Finally, in chapter 26, Jesus tells them once again what is about to take place on the eve of when it is going to happen. With each statement, Jesus amplifies what he says, and he wants his disciples to understand. For example, in chapter 16, he tells his disciples he's going to be handed over to the religious leaders, and he's going to be killed. He says here in chapter 17, he's going to be delivered over to the hands of men, and they will kill him. The word delivered means betrayed. Obviously, a foreshadowing of what Judas is going to do with Jesus. The word men could also be read as enemies, pointing not only to what he said back in chapter 16 concerning the religious leaders, but trying to help his disciples understand that it's going to be at the hands of the Romans. 
In chapter 20, Jesus brings it even to a clearer perspective in what is going to happen. He not only points back to the religious leaders, the scribes, and the priests, but then he tells them that they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And at that point in time in chapter 20, the picture is starting to become clearer for the disciples or what they're going to endure. The Gentiles would definitely be pointing to the Roman Empire as they had the only authority to cast such a judgment of flogging an individual and ultimately crucifying him. In chapter 26, Jesus makes it abundantly clear when this is going to happen, and it's going to take place during the Passover. And in every instance, except in chapter 26, Jesus tells his disciples, even though he's going to be killed, even though he's going to be crucified, he is going to rise on the third day. And so what is Jesus doing here, and what is the principle we can take from Jesus is preparing his disciples, and this is one principle we learn about God throughout Scripture, is God prepares his people. The first two times he does it, 16 and here in 17, the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. First time led to Peter's rebuke. The second time we're told in Matthew, the disciples were greatly distressed. Mark and Luke give us a little more clarity on what this distressed was. Mark tells us in chapter 9, verse 32, the disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Luke dies a little bit further, saying what Jesus was saying at this point in time was concealed from them, so they could not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. We can only speculate on why Luke was led to use that word concealed, but there are some rational ideas we can come to. First, it might have been concealed Because the first time that Jesus made this statement, Peter decided to speak up, and he was rebuked for it. And they saw that. They witnessed that. So maybe there was a fear in them to ask him because of what happened to Peter previously. Another thought is that it was concealed because they had this preconceived notion of who Jesus Christ should be, who the Christ, the Messiah, should become. Because we have to keep in mind these 12 disciples were Jewish men. And they were raised up in Jewish homes, and as Jewish boys, they would have been taught that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring Israel back into world dominance. In either case, the disciples couldn't wrap their head around it. They didn't understand what this information that he was giving them, they didn't know how to respond to what he was saying. And Jesus' rest is going to transpire, and we can see that the disciples didn't understand it because... Most of them had fear in their hearts. Peter actually tried to stop it. God prepares his people. We see throughout Scripture, God prepared creation before he created mankind. He prepared everything to be in the garden for their survival and gave them instructions on what to do and what not to do while they were there. You jump into the book of Exodus and you come to the tenth plague which is what the Passover celebration eventually was to celebrate. It was the night that God passed over his people when they had the blood of the lamb that was on the doorpost. And God gave them instructions. He prepared them for that night and what they were to do. And as a family, they were to sit at a table. They were to have their sandals on their feet and a staff in hand because they were to be prepared for the journey ahead. God prepared them. 
You go to the book of Joshua before crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. God speaks to Joshua and prepares him for the journey ahead. He tells him numerous times, Joshua, you have to be strong and courageous. And Joshua, you have to stick to my law. If you stick to my law and my word, then you and the Israelites will find success in the land. Before the first battle at Jericho, God again comes to Joshua to prepare him for this battle. We have to keep in mind, at that point in time, the Israelites had only been walking around for 40 years. They have had no battle training. They didn't even have weapons for war. And God comes to Joshua the night before, and he says, look, Joshua, here's the battle plan. I know you've been walking for 40 years. Guess how you're going to beat Jericho? You're going to walk. He prepared him. You jump to 1 Samuel chapter 8. The Israelites are in the land, and they begin crying out to God and crying out to the prophet, we want a king. All the nations around us have a king. We want a king. And so God speaks to the prophet Samuel, who is to tell the people to prepare them and what it's going to be like to have a king, that the king is going to tax them. The king is going to take the best of the land. You jump into the prophets. God sent the prophets to prepare his people and what was going to happen if they continued to live in rebellion against him. We walk through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights in our adult study. The book of Revelation is a book of preparation. God prepares his people for what it's going to look like and what's going to take place when the end of days come. God prepares his people. Matter of fact, throughout the book of Revelation, there are numerous times where God speaks out from the vision, that he's revealing this so that you might persevere in the faith, you might endure in the faith. God prepares. Now, I say God prepares, and maybe you can relate to this. There's been times in my life where I've gone through a current situation where I did not feel prepared for. I did not feel I was ready for that. I think I was a lot like the disciples when Jesus spoke these words is is that I've heard God speaking to my heart to prepare me for what was coming, but I didn't understand. And like the disciples, even though God was preparing me, I was too afraid to ask. I was too afraid to seek. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure. Meaning when temptations come into our life, God has already prepared us for those temptations. And not only has he prepared us for those temptations, according to that word of God right there, God has prepared a way out from under it. He is for us, not against us, just like we sing. He prepares Let's move to our second section of Scripture, verse 24. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and says, said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. 
One commentator just jokingly said, I bet Matthew was praying really hard for God or the Spirit to deliver a, a story about tax collecting because Matthew was a tax collector. And this isn't the only tax collecting that takes place within the book of Matthew. There's another event in chapter 22 when Jesus is in Jerusalem for the final time. And both taxes deal with a different type of taxing and what is being taxed. As mentioned in the past, you look at Capernaum there in verse 24, it's a type of home base. For Jesus' ministry, he and his disciples continually return back to, to this village, which is located on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. They most likely returned to the house that belonged to Peter. We know throughout the Gospels that Jesus and disciples would frequently stay at Peter's house. The issue that which arises here in verse 24 is they return to Capernaum, and some tax collectors approach Peter and ask Peter about Jesus' stance on the tax. Now, this particular tax here in chapter 17 was the temple tax. This was not a Roman tax. Every year as the Passover approached, the Jewish religious leaders would send out tax collectors in order to take up this tax, which was known as the half-shekel tax or the two-drachma tax. It was money that was meant to go into the temple to provide for the sacrifices, to provide for the upkeep of the temple. And so this particular tax here in Matthew chapter 17 was something that the Jews, they could go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they could pay the tax directly at the temple. But we have to keep in mind there's not cars in this day. Most people walked, and Capernaum was a long way from Jerusalem. And so most people did not want to carry a whole lot of resources or money with them as they traveled because there's many robbers along the road. And Jesus tells a parable about that, which we'll look at here after a while. As mentioned, again, it's not a Roman tax. Now, it would become a Roman tax in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. But at this point in time, the tax was paid by the Jews for national pride. They're very proud to pay this tax, to support the temple and the worship that went on there. Like any other tax that went on, sometimes it was used for improper resources. Sometimes the priests would take money from this tax that was meant for the temple in order that they may gain in wealth and prestige. But for the Jewish people, for most of them, this was a sign of their heritage. It was a sign of their ancestors. It comes from the book of Exodus chapter 30, verse 13. It reads, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So not only did this tax carry this sense of national pride and national heritage for the Jewish people, it also carried the sense that we were being obedient to the word of the Lord, to the law of God. And so the collectors approached Peter either because he has become known to be the spokesman of the 12 disciples and of Jesus at times, or because since Peter was from Capernaum, they're more familiar with him. They know him, so they know they can approach him and ask the question. But the question itself, even though we read, does your teacher not pay the tax, needs some context to clarify why they're asking this question. Because in this time, there were exemptions to paying the tax. And so priests, scribes, ordained and prestigious Jewish rabbis did not have to pay the temple tax. 
Now, Jesus, at this point in time in his ministry, has been recognized as a rabbi or a teacher. He's been recognized as pretty prestigious in the area. People flock to hear him teach, flock to see what he's going to do. He was even recognized as other people who didn't really like him as a teacher. And we'll see that as we go through the Gospels. But there's a hiccup. See, Jesus is never officially ordained as a rabbi. He was never officially ordained as a Jewish teacher. And so the question itself there at the end of verse 24 is, is Jesus going to promote himself into that role? And therefore saying he has the authority to ordain himself as a rabbi, which would make him exempt from the temple tax. Now Peter answers, yes, meaning yes, Jesus does pay the tax. And we don't know when this happened. We're not told any other time in Scripture when this happened, but we can probably assume Peter's not lying about it, right? I mean, Peter knows Jesus' stance about lying. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. And so I doubt Peter's lying about this, but there's a group within the Jewish people that felt they didn't need to pay the tax anymore. And so that could have what fell into it. There was actually a group called the Essenes who only paid the temple tax one time in their entire life. And so there's different views about this tax. Some thought, oh, we're doing the right thing. We're honoring our ancestors. We're honoring the temple. Some felt, well, nah. And others thought, well, I already paid it one time in my life, so it's done. So it's not really like this pickle of a situation that Jesus and Peter would have been in if Peter said no. He doesn't pay the tax. And so they arrive at this house, which, again, is probably Peter's. And Jesus, knowing all things, knowing the question that was presented to Peter, he turns to address Peter concerning the question about the tax. He does it in a very unusual way. It's not really a parable. It's more of a parabolic question. And so he's painting a scenario for Peter to be working through this process about people and power. And that, that word kings there in verse 25 could be read as rulers. It could also be pointing to the religious elite. It's anybody who has a position of power. And he asked Peter, does he think that these individuals tax their own? And what that means is do they tax their children? Do they tax their family? Or do they tax other individuals? And Peter knows the answer to this question. And so he answers it because it was a common practice. Emperors, kings, rulers, uh, religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they didn't tax their own family. And so that word others can also be read as strangers. And Peter says, no, they tax strangers. They tax the people that they don't know, that they don't really care about. And because of Peter's understanding of the, who the, the tax was collected and how the tax was collected... Jesus makes this interesting statement in verse 26. He says, then the sons are free. And the meaning is the children of God are exempt from the tax. In particular, the son of God is exempt from the tax because the tax goes to the temple, which worships God the Father. And so Jesus in this moment is telling Peter, look, we are exempt we do not have to pay this tax. But it's then, for some strange reason in verse 27, Jesus looks to Peter and says, Now, here's what I want you to do, Peter. I want you to go out to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I want you to cast your fishing rod, and I want you to take the first fish that you find, and inside that fish is going to be a shekel, 
which is equivalent to four drachma, and that's going to be he, Jesus, and Peter's payment to the temple tax. Now, what's interesting about this whole experience is in Exodus chapter 38, verse 26, it speaks of this temple tax again, and that only individuals who are 20 years of age or older have to pay the temple tax, which means that only Jesus and Peter are 20 years of age. So Jesus is equivalent to our youth pastor, our college pastors today. All the other disciples are teenagers. Otherwise, he would have provided for them too to pay the tax. So we're not told that Peter actually went out and did it, but the text makes us assume that Peter was obedient to what Jesus said. Now, some people think that this miracle that Jesus does was done out of selfish intent. And some wonder why Jesus didn't just take the money from the money bag that Judas liked to carry around. Well, it's most likely they came back to Capernaum because they've been traveling around quite a bit and they've ran out of resources. We have to keep in mind there are four disciples who have fished in the Sea of Galilee, which Capernaum was on the shores of. And so they could go out and fish, make some money, and prepare them to go out once more time to do the ministry tour. But it reveals another principle that we've got to understand about God is that God provides for his people. God prepares and God provides. And we can see these two principles throughout the Old and the New Testament. And if God is to be the representation of that parabolic question of the kings, then God is telling us as his children, he does not tax us. He does not put burdens upon his children. Now, he may let us go into testing. He may allow temptation to come, but he does not apply extra burdens upon his children. Instead, he provides for them. And what that is a reminder for us that everything that we claim to possess has been given to us from God. It's not the paycheck from your job. It's provided to us from God. Our jobs are provided by God. Our house is provided to us by God. Our cars, our extracurricular vehicles have been given to us by God. Our skills and our talents, our money. If you're married, your marriage was provided to you by God. Your kids were provided to you by God. Your grandkids were provided to you by God. Everything we claim to possess has been provided to us by God. And the reason it's been provided to us by God is because God wants us to be faithful stewards of all those things. That we are to take care of them as God has taken care of us. To be a faithful steward. To watch over it. There's one more principle and it comes out of verse 27. Jesus tells Peter that they're going to pay this tax. And he tells Peter, we're going to pay this tax for one reason and one reason only. He's already made it abundantly clear that the children are free. And the reason in verse 27 is to not give offense to them. And the principle is focused on God's desire for his people. God does not want his people to be provokers. The word offense in verse 27 is the Greek word to which we get the English word scandalize. 
To scandalize something is to do something considered improper or immoral. Now, the Greek, the words in the Greek carry not just definitions that we can be familiar with, but a lot of times the words in Greek are hard to fully translate into the English because Greek words and Hebrew words can carry thoughts of emotion. And so this Greek word that we hear offense is a word that also means to cause to sin, to scandalize, to trip up, to make one stumble, and to cause one to fall. And so the reason that Jesus has Peter go fishing to get their tax payment is because he is a Jew, and he's a Jewish Messiah. And even though he is exempt as a son of God, there would be a vast majority of Jews who would see him not pay the tax and feel that he did not have pride in the Jewish heritage, nor did he obey the law. And so he would give offense and cause the majority of Jews to stumble on who he was, the very people he came to save. The Jews that didn't pay the tax, they didn't care if other people paid the tax. They didn't view it as national pride. They didn't view it as something that supported the temple because the temple in the Old Testament wasn't the same temple that they were living in today. It wasn't the temple built by King Solomon. So they thought, you know, if you want to pay the tax, that's your prerogative. You go right ahead and do it. But Jesus goes ahead and pays the tax because he doesn't want those who viewed this tax in high esteem to fall away from knowing who he was, that he was their Messiah. Now, the Apostle Paul was led by the Spirit to use the same word when he wrote to the Corinthian believers in his first letter. And you can read it later, but in chapter 8, Paul is led to take on the practice of eating food that is offered to idols. And Paul's initial instruction to them is like, look, we know that all things come from God. Like we said, God provides all things. And we also know that these are false idols, and therefore, they don't actually own the food. Okay, God owns the food. But in the same breath as Paul is laying this out, he says that we as believers need to be careful of partaking of this food offered to idols because it will be perceived that we are joining in the worship of these false gods. Then he goes on to say at the end of the chapter, in chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, he says, Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding, your, their, wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And that word stumble that he uses twice there is the same Greek word we find here in Matthew chapter 17 for the word offense. And here in Matthew, Jesus is pointing out that he didn't want the Jewish people to stumble in their understanding of who he was as the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the understanding is that we as God's people are to be aware of what we do, what we say, and how we act because people are watching. The world is watching. And I think we see that on the news. When Christians stumble, when the church stumbles, it's blasted because the world is watching. Paul will come back to this train of thought in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. He's led to write, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. I like how the New International Version writes, it says, I have the right to do anything, 
but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. New Living Translation reads it as, You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. The point is, as God's people, we are not that our actions and our words and our responses to things provoke people away from God. We're not to be a stumbling block which trips someone up from wanting to go to church. We're not to be an instrument used by the enemy to cause someone to fall away from a relationship with God or even desiring to have a relationship with God. This morning we're dealing with the temple tax. Here in a couple months we'll deal with the Roman tax in Matthew chapter 22, but there's another tax we also have to deal with. That's the sin tax. S-I-N tax. Because sins have to be paid for in order for forgiveness and salvation to be found. And that's why Jesus came. He came to pay for the world's sin tax. And if you've yet to recognize or accept by faith how your sin was paid in full through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, then when your life is over, you're going to spend eternity separated from God. You're going to spend eternity separated from anything and everything that is good. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's why God has brought you here this day so you can hear the gospel. And God created you for a relationship with him. And it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the cost of that sin. He died on the cross as he was warning his disciples in our passage this morning. He rose on the third day to show that he has the power to forgive sin. He has the power over death. And he has the authority to grant forgiveness and give eternal life. And the Bible says if you understand that's what you need, you believe that in your heart, the Bible says you must then confess it. Lord, I need to be forgiven. Lord, I need your son. I need your spirit. And the Bible says when you confess it, which means a public declaration of your faith, you will be saved. We come this time of invitation. If you're here this morning and you're like, I, I, I think that's something I need to do, I'm going to ask you to come on down the aisle. You don't have to stand here if you want. You can sit here and I'll sit with you. We'll pray together and celebrate together. But this might be the day of your salvation. You just have to respond. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask Nick to come up and lead us in a time of invitation. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for preparing us for the things that are coming and providing for us. Lord, let us be a people that represent you as your ambassadors, the light and salt of this earth. And Lord, I know that we all stumble at times. We all do things that we shouldn't. We ask you forgiveness for those things. I pray if there's someone here this morning that has heard what you did for them through your son, Jesus Christ, and now understands that they need to accept that and make that a public declaration. I pray your spirit would come upon them and they would come down this aisle and today would be the day of their salvation. We thank you, we praise you for you alone are worthy of it. We praise in the name of Jesus, amen.